Hello. Today I'm welcoming John Luongo to the heartbeat of the dance floor. John and I first met back in the mid-70s. I had just moved to New York City and embarked on my career in the music business with the Howard Bloom Organization. I remember contacting John in Nightfall Magazine in my first days as a publicist, gathering coverage for our clients. Soon afterwards, a lifelong friendship grew as John relocated to New York City from Boston. Over the years, John has had a storied career as a DJ, producer, remixer, writer, publisher, record label president, and now in his current role as president of Trector Entertainment, a division of John Luongo Management Records, LLC, I believe. He brings many different perspectives to our exploration of what makes up the heartbeat of the dance floor. Hello, John. Welcome to the heartbeat of the dance floor. We're delighted to have you here today. It's great to be here. And I do remember those early days because I loved you and I loved Howard Bloom. We went on to become very good friends who I, I call him and check on him all the time just to see how do he's you doing. Still? Yeah. Yeah. He's a great man. He was a great he guy. Is, you know, I think it's probably been about 10 years since I last had contact with him, oh, um, he but he's still you. at President Street, still at the I'm same place. And, no, he, no, what a wonderful no. man. And Linda, too. Um, oh, yeah. What a what he, you know, that man literally changed my life. He taught me what professionalism meant. I tell you, you're right about that. You know, in that era, he and Susan Blonde were the two most tremendous, powerful, yet incredibly wonderfully touching people you could meet. You could, Beautiful you could, down to earth people. Yeah, really good. But they're still great. You know, they that maybe oh, that's yeah. Really great. Oh, yeah. And the pedigree, you know, it was funny. I was listening to a Ray Caviano uh, interview that he oh, yeah. did not very long ago. And of course, the connections all somehow seem to end up to go back to Circus Magazine in the 60s. Oh, dear Lord. There we go. You know, that was that was kind of the beginning. And, and when I started with Howard, he had pretty much just formed. Mark Bego worked there, yes. Helene Bart, Barbara yeah. Shelley, and myself. And in the side office was Ray's twin, Bob, who was yeah. with Jerry Heller Management. And it was, you know, I was so, I still feel to this day, so fortunate to have begun in New York, a wide-eyed kid from Florida. And this was where I landed. I was like. Great, as did I. I came from Boston not knowing. I said, you know, what's going to happen here? But. I just was tired of getting in the planes, landing at LaGuardia, going into the studio, and then going home and getting a phone call to come back. I said, this isn't going to work. <laughs> so. And New York is certainly a fun place to live. I know we had a lot of good times hanging together, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. We could sit and kind of relive old times for forever, but I'm sure our listeners have tuned in for a more elevated conversation. And yes. um, I would like to first ask you if you could give us a little recap and tell us a little bit about yourself, um, what brought you to this point in your career. Um, and then the other half of that would be elaborating a little more on functions uh, and, and expertises as they would relate to the events industry. Right. Because of course your perspective was a little different. Um, you yeah, created the tools that we know. used. I came from a um, I came from a strange background. There's no reason for me to be here on in this in this seat talking about this because my I started out just loving music for the sake of loving it. Growing up in Boston, where rock and roll, R and B, you know, you heard them all together. 
country folk, the whole deal. And um, I went to Northeastern University. I was I went first as an industrial engineer, and then I uh, switched to um, mechanical. And then I said, you know what? I think I'm going to go to civil because I originally wanted to be an architect. And the reason for that, which would probably helps this story, is um, I said to myself, I'd like to do something so I can make a mark on the world and let them know I was here. Why this came into my mind as a young kid, I have no idea. Other than, you know, I know my father worked really hard driving a truck and carrying ice and all these things. And I saw him work hard. I said, I just want the world to know I existed. Very strange, but I kept it to myself. I didn't go around telling anybody. So I went to Northeastern five years, um, graduated Bachelor of Science in Civil Engineering. To As I went to Northeastern, um, we I was on the, the radio station there. And all I would say is, W-N-E-U. That was it. And then they play songs. Those are my, my big three initials, you know, four initials. And um, and then we, one day to chill, we went walking out to a club. We went to Boylston Street and we came across this place called the Bull and Finch Bar downstairs. And that was throwing darts and everything. And then I said, I heard music. I said, let's go up. So me and three of my friends on a break, we went upstairs to a place called the Townhouse, which is above the Bull and Finch Club, which is what they see on Cheers. So we did that. And um, there was a DJ up there named Peter spinning records. He was about, you know, four feet off the ground. And there was nobody in the room. It was an old judge's chambers with books everywhere and Peter spinning. And I go up and said, hi, my name is John Luongo. And I play uh, music on the uh, station in, in uh, Northeastern. And I said, this is great. If you ever need anybody to do this, let me know. I had never done it. I had seen it once or twice before, but never did it. So I wrote my name in a matchbook. I said, here. Two weeks later, I get a phone call from the manager, Jim, of the townhouse, who said, hi, Peter left, and he gave us your name. Said, <laughs> what a fluke. Give me my name to do what? <laughs> okay, well, to, to spin. Spin? Oh, sure. Uh, when do you need me? I'd like you this Friday. This was a Monday. So I go, oh, oh God. Lord. I went to Everett Music in Everett, which is the local shop, and I said, I want, give me these 45s and give me, I want the, I want the Isley Brothers. I want, uh, I want yeah, this. Yeah, give us a year perspective here, John, if you don't mind, just so we know the era. Sounds like early 60s-ish. Yeah, 60s. it was like 60, actually it was, um, yeah, mid-60s, right? So it was, you know. There was a lot little, of good music then. <laughs> yeah, a lot of stuff. And, uh, and I, but I didn't know what I was doing. Which is fine because I realize in life, you know, as you probably do, you're probably best just jumping in and saying you can do everything and figure out how to do it later. Because if you don't, you're never gonna you're never gonna go anywhere. And fear's a nice thing; it's a very real good motivating factor. Yeah. So, agreed. I go in there and there's two turntables, great ones. They were QRKs that the radio station used. The only problem is there's no headset cue, and you can only you can play them both together or each one, but you couldn't hear what was going on with one when the other one was, was playing. So I said, oh, my God. Was it so, like a jukebox with two turntables as opposed yeah, to having a mixer yeah, in the middle? I mean, just a nice console, looked like a DJ console with a mixer in between, but you could not hear it. I, there was no cue system. So what Even I would do is mixer, like, that's strange. Isn't that crazy? Just a mixer yeah. with no cue, no headphone. There was no headphone at all. So I go in and I say, oh, God. So I, find, I put on a record and when nobody's there and I have, I had to find a way to do this. So I take a record and move it around the table. And when I heard the first, I go, oh, I put a black magic marker there. 
and I gave the record a quarter of a turn from my days in radio. I said, okay, one, two, music. So I hit it on two. So now the record's playing. So now when one's playing, I get the other one queued up and I go, you know, just put it up loud enough so I can hear the boom and turn it back a quarter and nobody else hears, put the volume down. Then at the right point, one, music. So I was now mixing records without hearing them, but I was doing really good. This is the first time in Boston anybody had ever heard part one and part two of a record being played. You get Steely, I remember Steely Dan on Do It Again. You could you had to wait for the album to get the whole thing. Not at the townhouse. I see whether she's that lady. Not there. So I'm blending these records together. Now the crowds are coming in like crazy. The DJs are coming in. And I got the local radio station promoters the, uh, from the black station, WILD, from the from the pop station, uh, WMEX. Uh, they came in from college stations. And all of the radio, uh, radio record promoters would come in. Barry Corkin from A&M, the people from Columbia. So they're giving me their records and I'm playing and became very, very popular. And one day, you know, I was tired of writing all the names of the songs down. I don't want to get too long into this because I could go forever. But I would write the names of the songs on a matchbook or on a napkin. And I said, boy, this is kind of a pain. But I did it. And uh, one of my friends came in and said, you know what? You keep writing these songs down. Why don't we start a magazine? I said, I don't, what are you talking about? I don't I don't never had a magazine, you know, and he says, you just put a list of the songs that you're playing in there and we'll put it out. And I said, all right, let's, let's try it. So I came up with the name Nightfall and I, I have these, I have all my magazines, by the way. That is and a classic magazine show, the little from, tiny green from thing. the music biz. Oh my God. That, you well, know, so that's that, right up there. That's a classic. You know, we started writing little stories about dance and I call it TC's Disco Dozen. And so I would list the 12 best records that were being played and then the ones under it. And then I put, and you as a DJ will appreciate this. And I put down, I would never list an album unless there were three good songs on it to play. I said, you know, you can go out and buy that single, but if you want, buy this album, because this is at least three deep and songs for the DJ. So I- That's funny. Roy had a three rule as well. As, As did Howard Bloom. There it is. You see the three rule. I think it applies everywhere. I wonder why. I don't know why it came, but it does sound like two's not enough and three's perfect. So yeah, four is too many. So we did. We did that, and (laughs) started to grow, and and then that got bigger, and then I went from a little thing to a full size, eighty pound gloss stock. So we went from a sheet pretty much to a gloss thing, and then I got, I I would go up. Now I'm getting very popular, and I. I said, you know what? I think I let's let's start a, a you know way to get records for the DJs. So I go up to Epic, and um, which was um, lo- it was it was located in I think it's Lemonster, Mass. And I went up there. I said, look, wh- why didn't you give me records for all the DJs instead of just me? You know, I mean, I, you want me to send everybody here to you? And they go, oh no 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 no. They're all they they thought we were weird. They didn't realize I was weird too. I just didn't maybe look as weird because of their preconceived notions. But listen, we're in music, we're in dance music. You learn that you're a misfit, you're strange, you're out of, you know, you come from another world. Don't you feel that that's common 
as a generalization for all, if most, if not all in the entertainment business, oh, in absolutely. the arts, artists, even, you know, look, I think even painters are weird. I just don't really know any of them very well, but <laughs> I have a posse of friends in the music business. You know, and, and they thought that, I mean, they didn't know, they didn't like our lifestyle or what we represented or this or that. I mean, because basically, see, they couldn't get us. They couldn't figure us out because we all had that music, that music was the was our host it was the thing that we all we loved each other but the music acted as like that little golden omelet you know it was like that special little thing that we were able to connect with and saw each other for the beautiful people we all were like i never looked at any of my, my friends you or anybody had i didn't look at your ethnicity i didn't care what gender you were i didn't care what color you were i don't care if you had a nostril that came on the top of your head i just knew if you like music and you loved it passionately like I did, and I could have a conversation with you, you would be my friend and I would embrace you. I I feel that that was indeed the common denominator and, and part of maybe one, you know, you're bringing up an aspect I didn't even think about, but it is part of the heartbeat. It is the common denominator. <laughs> there was, you know, and I'm not actively involved in the record business like I was back then, but what I did notice back then that I, haven't seen so much is a sharing and a a joy in not being the person who has the best record but being the person who gives the best record to the most other people so that they can get the most audience and play for it and Very share true. it and spread the joy it, it was so true and it wasn't about it wasn't about having something that nobody else had it was about having it and then giving it to people you know, and, and just just sharing that wonderful, listen to this. And their excitement and euphoria, because the person that brought it in, was not the fact that they found it, but the fact that they found it and could give it to an audience that embraced it. And we made the initial, you know, foray in the record pool. I started the record pool after this, by the way. You know how the record pool started? There were three in the country. There was New York, uh, Long Island, and Boston. I started- Judy, for the record, I assume you're talking about. Pardon me? Judy Young. Judy's for the record. And Jackie what was McCoy. Long Island IDRC? Uh, no, that was Jackie McCoy. He ah, was, okay, he was, okay. And I, I was there. I mean, we started the same week or so and didn't even know he's. I didn't know what a record pool was. Here's, here's, how I, here's how I started record pools because I was told that they didn't want to see these people. They said, you know, no, they're just too weird. They're too strange. We don't need all these crazy people coming up here. How about we give you some records and you give it to them? I said, oh, okay. So I had an office anyway. So, so I now got a I'm, garage. I could do it. I started, I started the pool. They go, all right, I don't know what a record pool is, but I'm going to have one. And uh, so now we got a record pool and all the DJs are congregating. And I picked the best DJs in New England with the most diverse audiences and everything because i realized the key to success like pop radio is not having one kind of dj one gender of dj or one of people that like specific music it's having a wide base where each person brings their love and passion of the number one song in their audience to you and now you can share it now you got power and Agreed. so we started at 25 and we ended at 200 and wow. we were killing it and and so from that, I said, well, the magazine's doing good. I used the magazine to push the pool. Then we took the chart in the magazine, and I put it in every record store. I gave it to all the radio stations. So the radio stations in Boston, in New England, were now playing their songs 
based upon the chart in Nightfall magazine. So we became really powerful. And well, then you were. you were, I mean, it was billboard charts reporting and nightfall. And I mean, the billboard reporters were nationwide, but yours, yeah. yours was regional, but it was a side-by-side -side comparison. I remember every week you look at the charts. Those were the two charts you looked at. Yeah. And we, and they were real. I mean, we didn't, I wouldn't take very real. <laughs> I never take it. You know, that's one thing I'm proud of in, in my whole history in this business. I never took uh, money for playing a record. I would not, I would rather just not play the record. And then take the money then because it was my reputation. I realized, listen, even to this day, we're only as good as we are today, Marsha. If we Agreed. If made a mistake today and did something stupid, a lifetime of really good, cautious moves would be wiped out. So I didn't want to I don't want to risk that. Well, and, you know, it's all it is at the end of the day, all about your integrity and character yes. as a human being. And I think if you display I like to think if you display certain traits early on in your years and you continue them throughout your life, you find out when, that those repay and reap the benefits of long friendships, long yep. career, people who do respect you, people who do trust you. I mean, trust is a huge thing. It's a huge uh, thing. It, it's, it, you can't buy it. No amount of money will, will, will pay for trust. It's earned. It takes time. And, you know, it's probably one of the most value. I view it as one of the most valuable commodities yeah. on this earth. I think I think in relationships and personal relationships and business and everything to say you trust somebody and be able to turn your back on that person, knowing that they will have it for you. That's incredible. Huge. It's and huge. It, is, it also breeds long, endearing, enduring friendships because Absolutely. Absolutely. you say this person like you and I, if I didn't talk to you for five years, which is the case sometimes. It wouldn't be like, you know, when I talk to you the, after the five years, it'd be like uh, we just push the pause button and we unpaused it. You know, it goes on, you know. Yes, and, and that is indeed um, one of the things that I view as gifts in my this part of my life is that I do have these wonderful, endearing friendships that, you know, so many people know me from my career in the lighting business. Yeah. You're one of the few who I really didn't have contact with while I was creating that very long career. Our, our we, you, we predate and go back to the music business. And, right. and yeah, well done. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you go back to like my beginnings. And, yeah. and, you know, it's nice because it gives me a chance to relive the joy of what brought me into the entertainment world to begin with. And that was being an artist being a musician, wanting to be in the music business. And, you know, there's so many different aspects, as you say, so many different spokes in the wheel yeah. of what creates. And from the creative sense in that you're creating the music for the event, there's all the genres, there's all of the, you know, the societal things. Uh, I mean, you go on and on, which is why I think your perspective is very interesting <laughs> because you come from the perspective early on as a DJ, but then you did evolve into doing more studio work and less live DJing, if I'm yeah. correct. Well, I, I look at that as critical. I looked at the fact that I spun records in, in, in clubs. It was my dues paying. It was also the most, I would tell anybody getting into music, it was the most valuable thing you could find out because you're there live spinning if you give my language suck you hear it if you're good you hear it 
Sometimes you think you're good and people tell you you suck. Sometimes you think you suck and people say, that was the greatest night you've ever played. I go, I thought I sucked. Well, maybe I got to reevaluate my sucking. So <laughs> that does happen. But there's nothing like seeing what the audience does because you learn how to feel them, like the heartbeat. You learn their heartbeat. You learn their pulse. I know when I played a recording and I had a mix that was great, and I could just feel it, the hairs on my arms would rise, and the people go crazy in that euphoric feeling. You know what? I was a performer in those things. DJs that are really good were performers. They mean, yeah. it got to a point where people have gotten really lazy. You know, you cue it up, you press a button. Listen, guys and girls, you're not doing anything. Just just, just to get it. Be daring. Don't just cue up things. Just try I mean, try something that you is unpredictable. You, you, the thing that I learned that I always – that made me really good in the studio was when I did a mix from one record to the next and it was just unbelievable euphoria craziness and you do it like three nights and it's great three or four nights but then the next week the temptation is do you do that again and I would say to myself if you do it again you're going to get comfortable if you get comfortable you're going to be complacent if you get complacent you're going to be horrible. You're going to fail because you won't know what to do when an odd occurrence or a new crowd or a situation occurs where you can't go to your go-to. What do you do when it's not happening? So I would purposefully do something out of my comfort zone because the process that it takes in thinking and making what you do become comfortable is how greatness is built. I think I'm greatness. To, I, you know, I am going to interpret all of those reasons and skills that you developed as a DJ became your toolbox that you then yeah. took into the studio. Because from my recollection, there's some mixes and productions you were involved with that to this day are true and sheer classics. Always bring a rousing round of people to the dance floor. If you've got a dead dance floor, this is one of those records you could throw on. And they would yep. come to the dance floor, and 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 Roy was correct. The jubilance, the the greatest uh, response that your audience, the crowd, could give you is, as you would say, you're dancing with your arms in the air when your crowd is totally filled with abandonment, and they are dancing so enthusiastically, they are so wrapped up in the journey that is happening. The arms go up. And when you've got one of those magical nights, it's like all arms up all night. You're right. Oh, it's, it's, and any performer, it, it's kind of like the joy of being on stage. Really you know, personally, I hate being on stage, but I've been involved with events where even from behind the scenes, when you it. help create that magic, when you help create that energy, that's all the applause you need. You'd be happy to do it for free. That's right. And, and, and when you, when you have an audience and you've gotten into their, you know, you got into their biorhythm and now you're working like this, you and that audience are clicking together and you feel them building and building and you have such a great feeling of obligation upon yourself to knock it out of the park because you know they're ready to explode. And when you can come up with that mix, that moment, that timing and realize, in my opinion, the right record at the right time is better than the greatest mix in the world. That explodes it's euphoric and you just you're sharing in it and you just i mean you feel like you almost sweat <laughs> you know but 
I think you need to do that. Well, yeah, I, I think that, you know, it's been proven scientifically that emotions create physiological responses oh, in yeah. us, endorphins and, you know, nervousness and all of that stuff and joy and jubilation. It, 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 you can't describe the feeling. No. If you've been there and you know it, it's irreplaceable. It's what I call in the, in the concept of this show, magic. And to me, the heartbeat, can come in many different forms. It can come from the DJ. It can come from the venue. It can come from the audience. It can come from the selection that is played. Hence your work in the studio, creating the tool, which would be the musical tool. It doesn't matter the genre. I think that rock concerts and symphony performances also can have heartbeats. I think operas have heartbeats, but you know, I'm going a little out on, on a reach. Let me bring myself back into topic, which is yeah. of the dance floor. So in, so you'll end about 38 minutes of that, but that's okay. And uh, that's okay. It, within, so let me, let me ask you something though, John, within your interpretation of the phrase, heartbeat of the dance floor and examples of what you feel were some of those pinnacle moments of your career. Um, you know, from, we haven't even begun to talk about your career as a producer, the records that you've worked on, you know, if you want to touch on that a little bit and give us some of your, you know, examples of what were magical moments, because sure. clearly you know how to make the magic. Well, we did, we did a thing in Boston um, we did it. It was called the, uh, um, what was it called? We did the disco awards. Okay. And we did that in Boston and that was like based on nightfall, but we also did the ultimate disco, which is an idea I came up with. I said, you know what guys and girls, we, have, we have this great, we have all this great talent here and none of you get any credit. I mean, I, I, by the way, I had the first, one thing I'm very proud of is I had the first radio show dance show in the United States. It was called The Right wow. Track on T.C. Luongo. I'm sorry, was, say that. Wait, wait, wait. Say that again slower. It was called The Right Track with John T.C. Luongo, and I called it The Music That's Making America Dance. Nobody knew what the hell dance music was. Nobody knew anything about it. Matter of fact, they even got it syndicated on 25 stations in the Night Quality Station group, and they played it, and people would love it. And I use ultra-high frequency, where I'm the right track now is my wow. theme song. did you record any? Do you have any of those tracks? Yeah, I got, I actually found some. I've got- Oh, um, we love- Oh, about my gosh. hours of it. Somebody, my fans, and I recorded them every week. I go, no way. So he just, I just- Would, got, you, would you be willing to share one of them with, oh, yeah. uh, with heartbeatofthedancefloor.com and we can put it up uh, yeah, alongside, yeah. alongside what we do on our website? Yeah, and we, the, the, the reason this was, was really interesting, Marsha, is not only was it the first dance show in the United States, it was the first show in the United States that not only uh, pre you know pre previewed the music and played it and new mixes. I mean, I said, well, here's something by somebody you, you don't really know, but you will know of him at some point because he does great music. His name is Tom Moulton. So here's an interview with Tom. And Tom, what's the name of that? Grace Jones, I Need a Man. Bam. So I not only helped them, but I helped the DJs. I spotlighted all the DJs. I had them come on and do their little sets. But uh, that they would send in my entire show. The mixing was live. Wow. Every so if I made a mistake, the world knows. Okay, and I wow. didn't. So, so there's where you got. There's where you start to learn. You have got to be responsible. And I did one section where I said, "All right, 
I called it Segwayed Serenade. It was 15 minutes, nonstop, song to song, me mixing live on QRK turntables once again, which now I was becoming pretty good at because I use them at the townhouse. So now every DJ started listening, and we were on at night right before the ghetto, which is the black station that came on, black show came on at 12. So I was on from 11 to 12. And um, and the people would go crazy. And I would get and the radio signals at night had to be shut off from some of the stations like WILD and other ones. And so my signal would go across the water and people would pick me up in the Cape. They could get me in Maryland. They could get me in parts of New York. And I have all of the radio programmers listening. The DJs listening. Retailers are listening. And I'm getting all the artists to come on and talk. I got KC in the Sunshine Band. I got Howard Smiley. Uh, all of these people is just starting out. So that show became a lightning rod for good in our industry and brought brought people's attention to the wonderful talent of each each DJ. In other words, I didn't want it for me. I wanted it. I wanted to be the conduit. I looked at myself. I knew early on. I said, I got to be strong. I'm going to get I'm going to get attacked because you got to be tough sometimes. And but you also know, as you do, somebody has to stand up and say, we're doing it this way because I can't waffle. So I'll take the slings and arrows, beat the hell out of me. But this is how we're doing it. And I was now, the Well, you know, look, uh, there are leaders and there are followers in this world. And I think that the, the you know, the way they go about it, uh, it's individual character. Yeah. There's probably as many different ones as there are people out there. Yeah, I think you are. And, and thank God. There are some people who can, you know, grab the bull by the horns, as the saying goes, and yeah, and go with it, you know. Um, and, and there, and then there are other people that are merely looking for someone to give them the direction, and they eagerly jump on board. Yeah, I, I found both. I, I found the challenges. I love the opposition because I, it, I, I am so grateful to every bad thing that happened to me. I learned how to deal with objections, heartache, pain, responsibility of keeping people alive in the magazine and everything. Everything fell on me. I had three jobs at one point. I was working at Whimsies as a DJ, and then I'd go and run the magazine. I would then, in turn, take trips once every month to New York where I'd walk up and down the streets to every advertising agency to get them to advertise. And then I was also uh, spinning on WBOS. So I was like, I just, you know, I never, I never really stopped. So, but I, but I ah, did. the energy of youth. Huh? Ah, the energy of youth. Yeah, there we go. Couldn't get rid of it. But, uh, so, so. What that, year that, did you move to the city, John? I forget. I think it was, um, I think it was 1975. I think it was, I'm pretty sure about 75. Because I graduated in 73 from Northeastern. And I immediately worked one year. I built an eight-story, 175-unit apartment building. I took a picture of it. I gave it to my mom and dad. I said, I said, I'd go to school. I graduate and I'd work. I'm quitting. And they said, what? They said, they wanted me, the uh, construction company said, you're going to be a star. You're going to put up a 22-story building in Worcester. And I said, this is not what I want to do. Because I, I still kept spinning records on the this side. Was the, this was the civil engineer career, this correct? This was said, Goodbye. And Johnny went to spin records at the rhinoceros. <laughs> hey, you know, sometimes you, you just have to it. follow your heart's path. You know, you got to go what you got to do. And as much as my parents didn't understand me, what I was doing, I said, my, my, my mother and father, my father said, are you making any money? <laughs> 
I'm doing pretty good, but I'm alive. You know, I didn't care. It wasn't if it's about the money, it's not about the end game. It's yeah. can't be. Well, it's it's you know? true, and and it, even though there are many temptations along the way, at the end of the day, I think if you go through your life with what I say, a song in your heart and a yeah. smile on your face, the rest is secondary. Now, granted, we all need to have a place to lay our head. We need yeah. to have a seat to sit on. We need food to sustain us. Sure. But a soft cushion or a hard chair doesn't necessarily make you a happy camper. No. And, and doing something that brings you a lot of money that you're not enjoying doing and waiting for the results of that money to give you the ability to get away from what you're doing to do something to have fun, to me, was not the path. I, I've told my kids, I tell everybody, I said, look, do what you love. I told both my kids, I said, I don't care if you're garbage collectors. I said, but here's the one rule I do have. If you want to be a garbage collector, you will and must be the best garbage collector the world has ever seen. That's my rule. And I, I know it was hard to want to make my kid, Cody, who's very smart, is to say, you have greatness in you. And he gets so, he wants to stab me. <laughs> and he said, stop it. Don't put that pressure on me. I said, look, it's in you. You can either take it or you can throw it away. I said, but it's in you and you have an obligation to be great. And that pressure, now he's he's working in the gaming industry. He does things. He's, he's He works on promotion and marketing. He's a great writer. And he's a little pistol. You know, my other son is a... Uh, he, he works in the creative arts and he does like drawing and things of that nature. But I think um, just like with you, you know, you, you got to do what makes you happy. You sometimes you do what you have to do. You, and that's, and that's okay. I, I would never, I would never tell anybody that you did something you had to, because you didn't have an opportunity to do anything else. That that's a bad mark. No, it is. It is. A, you actually are very blessed and you are courageous because you're doing something you don't love because you must. To me, well, that's and a lot. I, I'm afraid with this past year and COVID, a lot of people Wait, do exactly it. that, which is pivot. And it may not be their first choice in survival, but it's something that they needed to do to survive and to help their families and, and keep their families above water, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but yeah, it, it, it is almost a crossroads. At least it was with me when I was young. I was very fortunate to have had a good paying job at a very early age that I wasn't happy with. Yeah. I wasn't happy. And when I went to my parents and said, I'm going to leave this job and move to New York and into the unknown okay. oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> with $400 and a friend who I'm sharing an apartment with and one month's rent paid, they were like, what? <laughs> hey, listen. But, but you, you, you have to, at some point, reach a crossroads where you identify what it is that brings you inwardly joy. Yes. And, and, and I think that's different for everyone. And I'm grateful that you and me and, you know, everyone else that is in our industry seems to perpetually have a smile on their face. Oh yeah. I mean, it I seems even in the worst of days, even under the most tedious and most, most, boredom, boring chores, the things that you hate to do, you still at the end of it, have a smile on your face. Yeah, that's so true. How I, does that happen? Because yeah, we do. Smile, I'm doing. I do. My company now has become one of the best in the country. At Please tell us. Tell, yes, I'm gonna. I'm gonna you interrupt know, you for wait, a minute. But I'm gonna got, interrupt, John. I'm gonna interrupt you, and I'm gonna ask you to bring us up to speed and give us a little bit of a description of what you're doing now. 
because I did not very well explain it. And I want everyone to know where they can find you and what you're doing and where your road has taken you from creating the party to now on this end of it. So by all means, please. Um, the, there's a, there's a lot of, we, uh, I've been blessed in that I've done, you know, some people can say they've done everything, Marsha, in this business. And what that means in, in, in that, in their vernacular is, well, I tried that a little bit and I tried this a little bit and I tried that almost like going in a buffet and picking. I made a promise to myself and it could, you know, some people can believe me or not believe me. I said, I will not do anything until I do it to the very end have achieved the goal where I think I have mastered it and only then will I move on to the next thing. I will never do something because I didn't want to be a jack of all trades. I was ultimately afraid of that. I said, you don't, if you just kind of dabble in stuff, you'll never be great at anything. So I got an idea. Let's put all the pressure on yourself, John, and you have to be great (laughs) at everything. It's not egotistical. And believe me, I'm smart enough to realize I'm going to walk into a room with people that just do that one thing, and I better be as smart as them. So I have done mixing, editing, production. I've had a record label, youngest president of a record label in history. The only the only person who was who was there with me was Ray Caviano. I think he and I are both the same age, or he was a little bit he was a little bit older, but I definitely that was Pavilion Records, yeah, wasn't it? Was so they they never signed anybody that that age. So I said, "Whoa, this is my twenties," and I said, "Wow, this is great." So I did that. Then I did promotion. I did marketing. I had a magazine. We threw the Nightfall Awards, which we, which at some point we'll go into in depth. But I will tell you, it started at 150 people events. It was an idea. It was just a concept. 150 person event at the Mirage in Boston in the Elephant Room. I'll never forget. Uh, we had Crown Heights Affair come to receive oh, the wow. award. They were the first ones who gave it to, and. In four years, I went from 150 people to 4,800 people at the Orpheum, where I had Andrew Suskind, David Suskind's sons, coming to me to say, I think we should put this on the air, but I, you know, on, the, on TV. I said, well, I don't know at that point in time. I said, I'm not sure if I'm going to do the magazine or move on. I still own the name and everything. It's still mine, so I may come back at some point. But um, So I, I've done a lot of different things, and right now, my company, we deal with, um, we still do a lot of consulting for people, but my company um, called Trector Entertainment does licensing for film and TV. So we got busy as hell during this COVID because people were sitting home looking at Netflix and all of these things. And these these companies, production companies, needed to license the masters in the publishing. Well, in my career, I know everybody at the record labels. I know the master owners. I know the publishers. And we were able, and I worked for Stevie V and Zant for four and a half years, who was uh-huh. still here on The Sopranos. So that'll give you, you know, you go to, you go, you go one of these every month. Please, 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 <laughs> well, he's an icon for sure. Yeah, he's an uh, icon. So he, he was always impossible. He'd give me things like, I need this master cleared. When? Monday. But it's, Stephen, it's, it's like, Friday and people are going home and it was and it was a Keith Richards master. I had to get it to Keith in a cassette form on a plane sent to Barbados where he was vacationing to approve it. And we got it on Monday. But I mean, I so the torture was there. So my reputation now is we're really great at difficult licenses. So we get called from we do all this stuff for time. We do all the we do a lot of stuff at ABC, NBC. We're doing documentaries now. We're doing something on the Beastie Boys for Showtime. So they call me and do that. 
Then the other part of my company, another part of it, we do, I get taken advantage of by an attorney at, early on. And I guess this is a story that kind of goes with our industry, because if you're a creative person and you work and you love what you do, you're not thinking about the business. I wasn't as good a businessman then as I am now. And you know what? I don't mind that. And honestly, because Marsha, if you're, you can either focus on being great and loving the music and trying to do something good there, or you can try to protect yourself a little bit. And there's a balance, but you don't know that balance when you're really at the point in your career where you're trying to make a mark and do something. Not in your 20s, for sure. You just haven't lived enough life at that point. But, but here's what I did. I, I, I remember I was really angry at him for many years because he screwed me in a lot of stuff. And then I met a guy named Andy who was working with Def Leppard. He said, Luongo, let it go. I said, what do you mean? He said, you're angry. He said, the anger is paralyzing. He said, I was working with ACDC early on, and I hated my partner because he screwed me. He said, and I finally let it go, and now I'm working with Def Leppard. I said, you know what? You're right. So I learned to let that go, but I never forgot. You know, I learned from my burn. So I said, so I have a company now that does royalty recovery and collection, and we deal with people to, who never got paid, who, who basically are due money, and a lot of them were compromised because it was early in their careers. Like we have Bobby Eli from MFSB. We have uh, Carl Helm, who did was Blue Magic Stylistics. We, I, I have at the Dan Hartman Foundation we deal with, Curtis Hairston, a ton of people, you know, and so... I, I do things, Jerky Boys, Johnny Brennan from the Jerky Boys. And this is so interesting because people that were, were compromised and never got anything, I not only help them, but I say, you're going to learn. You don't have to. You don't have to take it all in, but I'm going to teach you how it happens. You're going to see every penny. The things that I wished had happened to me, I now do for them. And how wonderful. I, how wonderful. Do we, do, we then, do, do, I, do I give you a nickname of our publishing Cape Crusader? Yes, I can be the, I'll be the Cape Crusader. <laughs> I'll have to get a little cape made for you or a t-shirt or something. And, and then I, I, I think that's fabulous, John, because you're right. Um, that is one thing that probably every artist, anyone who ever wrote a song, anyone who ever tried to be creative and capitalize on it, got taken advantage of by someone at some point in their career until they... Learned. And yes, isn't that the point of making the mistake? Yes. You trip, you fall, you get up. The next time you see the obstacle, so you don't trip over it. You that know what? There isn't a new one in its path. But, you know, and, and, and I, I applaud you for being a mentor and a helper to so many artists that otherwise would be left behind. What a valuable, valuable job your company does. People that you would never think you would think were doing great had never gotten anything like the, you know, group like the Ebony's who I, who I represent, too. And and um, all of these groups, the one thing I tell them, I'm very quick to tell them this. There is no shame in being taken advantage of because the first thing, like an artist, they oh, I'm so stupid. I'm so this. I'm so that. I said, no. I said, what you are is an artist. I said, because I said, and you know, and thank God artists are wired weird. I think all creative people are wired weird. I said, you get a gift from God. <laughs> Marsha, I mean, was, I mean, come on. You write this I, I'm, okay. not, so, I'm not saying it. you're wrong. I think we're all a little oddly wired as well. But I get a gift from God, which is this ability to touch people magically through a song. What's the first thing they do? Let's give it away. 
I want the world to hear it. Let me give it away. So instead of saying, I'm going to hold it, I'm not going to give it, I'm going to protect myself. There's where you got to be careful. There's where the world loses. If we reach a point where artists who are so sensitive and delicate ever start second thinking and guessing and saying, I'm not going to give it to you because you're going to steal it and I'm not going to get what's mine. We're the losers. The world is the loser. So you're I'm absolutely right. You're a, you're absolutely right, John. And and by not having the tools, we then who were doing the next level of art, you know, look, if there wasn't great songs to play, if there wasn't great artists that recorded wonderful songs, we wouldn't be able to dance on the dance floor. I don't care what your genre is. You know, and 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 and, and, and that is, of course the beginning of the heartbeat, you know, and the blood flows throughout everything. But you're right. If, if the artists feel that, that they can't get the joy out of sharing their art, we as a world, we lose our loss, our loss. It's like losing a baby. We lose it. We lose a child. We lose an embryo of a song. We lose a moment that might've changed the life. I mean, how many times is music? Somebody dies. We each go to a song we, that we that we feel that we need at that moment. Somebody has something beautiful. You, you you turn on something and you open your windows like you live in your beautiful house and you look outside at the tree sure. and you're living. It is music so important that if we we hurt people to do this eventually, it's going to come back to bite everybody in the ass. And I'll tell you, I'm going to make a little bit of a left turn on this. This is why I don't like people like Spotify who go in there and say they saved the music business. They did not save the music business because you found a way to take artists who are insecure and are very weak and only want to get their music out because they need it to be expressed. And you you hurt the world with that. That's not a good thing. They should be paying them more, better rates. There, you know? I, I agree with you wholeheartedly that the royalty... The royalty world, look, the internet threw a whole lot of things on their ear in the royalty world. Yeah. And and now, you know, getting involved in this is very new to me. But I remember back in the 70s when discos and clubs and disco DJs threw the, re the recorded, the reporting industry on its ear because all of a sudden, you had record sales that weren't accounted for in radio play. And that entire industry needed what a year or two years to figure out what they were going to do yeah. about the sales that were generated from the clubs that right. weren't being charted on the radio. And it was before there were stations like WKTU that were dedicated to the market of disco, you know, um, it, 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 and I think that, that the evolution that needs to happen in our digital world, let's just say it's been a little slower, maybe because the digital world is so much greater and it's so hard to capture. Well, he, um, that, you know, that's an excellent that's a, point. That's a topic yeah. for another day for sure, John. The other John. point on that is it's a little slower because I'm sorry. Artists, artists don't band together. To, they don't band together and say, you're not going to get my song. I know I'm not going to get that exposure, but I'm willing to be a little bit less selfish and I'm going to forego the exposure for a payment that I deserve and my fellow artists deserve. When that happens, if artists ever got together, so long. Bye -bye. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not disputing at all what you're saying. And I think that, that certainly 
um, you know, the community of artists in getting together and doing that because they want to be paid yep. is a different group than people who are doing, for example, TikTok and they're creatively expressing themselves and nobody's worried about a copyright or a licensing or a royalty. They're happy to get likes. They're right. happy to be influencers. Whatever on this earth an influencer is, I'm still not exactly sure, but yes, whatever right. it is, they get a lot of likes. And they're on social media and, and, you know, okay, fine. That's the world we live in. It's all um, about ego. This is I'm going to ask if you could please tell us where we can find you. I'm sure that there are a lot of people out there listening who are either artists themselves or would like to know more about uh, your company in its present day incarnation. And please do share with us some of those, some of those early radio shows. We would be honored to play them here. Thank you. And I, I'd be honored to have them listening because there's great music early on. You'll hear Fly Robin Fly when it came out. You'll hear DC LaRue Cathedral first time. You'll hear Grace Jones for the first time. You'll hear me on the radio station saying, I'm playing this and I guarantee you right now, that I, if this is not the next number one song in the United States, that I will stop my program and will not come back ever again. And right we now, lead me this way by Thelma Houston. Thank God my job was safe. But, uh, <laughs> we look forward to you sharing those files with us. Me, if you want to see the website and what we, some of the things we do, you can go to www.johnluongomusic.com. I made it simple. And... I'm also on Twitter or on Facebook, uh, LinkedIn, Instagram. I, I have all those. Per just go on to John Luongo or Luongo John, either one. And you'll be able to read some of the things I write about. Because I write about, I love to write. And I write about the industry. I just wrote about the loss of Wolfie Yetnikoff, which was sad. I wrote about the loss of Charlie Watts, you know. Yeah, very sad. One of the things I'm grateful for, Marsha, is... My musical and growing up, my brother and, and my brother was playing Frankie Avalon and Gene Chandler doing Duke of Earl. My sister was playing Edie Gourmet, Barbara Streisand, and Sergio Frankie. I said, "What the hell? What, what are you doing?" And I'm trying to play Led Zeppelin. So <laughs> these things all flooded into my brain, and it. But in some ways, I ended up working with Johnny Mathis. I ended up mixing a record for Barbara Streisand. I ended up working with Aerosmith, Van Halen, Huey Lewis, Greg Kinn. John Waite and, and, and Kiss and Queen. And, and those are just because I kind of, you know, I was, had a diverse base. But my basic music that I, I mean, of course, is dance music that I love. I loved R&B. I used to go to sleep with a headset in my ear. And for an hour or so before I passed out, I did nothing but R&B. I listened to WTBS, The Ghetto, playing Donny Hathaway and the Black Poets and, and, and such strange music that was unbelievable, Black Yururu. And I'm saying, what is this? But somehow it got in my bones. And so that was my early training ground that allowed me to finally deal with music and mix. And one of the first things I ever did was, the, was a record that Epic wanted us to promote, but I couldn't because I said, it's, it's too slow. Got to have some hand claps, add some percussion, and, you know, you got to spice it up a bit. And so the product manager, Cheryl Machat, said to me, well, what do you mean? So I said, well, I'll show you. So I took my two, I took my two track, little Tiak, and I record, it had a very speed. So I recorded it slower so that when you put it at the right speed, it would be faster. And on the other track, I recorded salt shaker and spoons. 
That was my, I said, this is what, this is what it should be. She calls me up and says, can you do this? I said, well, I guess so. She said, all right, well, where do you want to go? I, I said, what do you mean? She said, well, we'll book a studio in New York. So I said, oh, uh, Media Sound. I only said media because I knew groups that I had seen there recorded there. So I go to Media Sound. Never happened before. I walk in and meet the manager, Susan Planer. And she says, um, would, like you to, would you like to work with Michael Barbiero? He's never been. He, he's an assistant, but he's not an engineer. He he's he's good. He can be one, but he's not now. I said I work with him, so I talked to Michael and I said I need a percussionist. So he introduced me to Jimmy Malin, who had just finished working on uh, What a Fool Believes in Kiss. I said sounds good to me. So I tell Michael I want the bass drum to be this big. I had no idea what I was doing. This big and it kind of hit me in the chest. I want the bass to hit me in the groin. I said we got to get some percussion and per- congas and stuff going. Meet Jimmy. We go up there together. We're clapping and we double it. He's playing percussion. He said, no, no, change it around. It's not the right pattern. And he's looking at me. Here's a great percussion. Now, thank God it was stupid. <laughs> because otherwise, <laughs> you, t- you know, if you really were. Well, I think naive, not stupid. Yeah, okay. Well, I didn't. I knew what I didn't want to hear. How about that? So uh, I said, let's do this. He said, that's really good. He said, have you, are you a musician? I said, I played guitar for seven years and I was horrible. So no. So we do the record. I leave it. Give it to Epic. Go back home to uh, to Boston. Three days later, I get a phone call. They're playing this in the Paradise Garage, and they're going crazy. And I said, "What?" I said, "Yeah, Richie Rivera called up, and he said he put it on. The place is going wild. It's it's Melba Moore. You stepped into my life. So oh, yeah, the record sure. is exploding, right? Now they said, would you come back and do it again? I said, okay. So I do another one. Now I do Pick Me Up, I'll Dance, yeah. and I take that attitude that I told you about, which is. You got to be daring because if you do the same thing, you're going to be dead. I said I'm going to make myself really uncomfortable. And do you know who, what firm did publicity for Melba back then? The Howard Bloom Organization. The Howard Bloom Organization. You see, you see how good you were. Do you see what you did for my career, and you didn't even know it? Didn't even know it, boy. But yeah, so we did that, and then this is a cute little side story in that. Jimmy, I said, Jimmy, I want something new. I don't. I want a sound that nobody's ever had before. I said, okay. So he's walking down the street and he's walking in and he's got this plastic tube. It's this long. It's blue. I said, what's that? He said, it's a hum hum. <laughs> a said, hum hum? It's a hum hum. He goes like this. He's spinning it and it goes. Ooh. I said, oh, that's the sound I want. So we go in and I said, now here's another thing, Jimmy. I want you to take, I want you to uh, take a syndrome and I want you to hit it, and I want it to be tuned like your voice, and I want you to say dance, right? I love Jimmy because he would love it because everybody else would tell him to play percussion. I let him be 12 and become a kid again. So if you think of Melba Moore, it starts, oh, pick me up, I'll dance, dance. Yes. And that's what Jimmy's singing over a syndrome. I actually I used one of my, my a song when he wasn't around that I did, uh, which was um, – uh, for uh, Marlena Shaw and uh, Love Dancing. I, I put my, I'm singing on that one. I'm, already, I'm actually singing a lot of different songs. I hum, I whistle. I'm out for Hitchcock. If memory serves, didn't you also do The Rays and Brian Adams? Yes. I actually, I went to Canada. I get a phone call from Jerry LaCourcia, the president. He said, you know, your name's being bantered around a lot here. 
I said, well, what's it being bantered for? <laughs> he said, you're very good. We'd like to say, now nobody, see, the great thing about what I was doing, nobody was even aware of mixing. Tom would do everything for Scepter and things. He would, Tom would make records longer. But I was the first guy that said, I have to add additional production to these because they don't sound right to me. So I changed with a, with a mixer and turned them into producers. But I went, I listened to the record. Jerry sent me the 45. And I said, you know what? I can make this a hit. I said, but I'm going to tell you something. The flip side, which was a rock and roll record, I said, is really good. And you should consider making this kid a rocker. Sometimes and, those B-sides okay. were the killers. So Sometimes I went in and go up to Little Mountain Studio in Vancouver. It's me, <laughs> Brian Adams at 16, Jim Valance, who was a guy from, he wrote all those songs, Taking Care of Business. Yeah. So and, and, and to this day, that Brian Adams song is 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 truly an iconic dance music. The race with his, hey, John. John, yeah. we can I invite you back to do a no, second no, segment of Heartbeat where we dive. I'd I'd love to have you back where we can dive into some of the mixes that you did, some okay. of the studio stories, and some of the artists that you worked with because I feel that's an entirely different segment. Yes, Once so again, give us your website, please. Uh, music.com johnluongomusic.com. Perfect. And we're going to have all of John's information also in the description and sidebar as this gets, uh, as this gets posted. And John, again, I can't thank you enough for being our guest at Heartbeat of the Dance Floor. We look forward to having you back. Boy, we've only begun to scratch the surfaces of yeah. the stories here, I feel. Thank you, thank you everybody, for tuning in. And again, John, it's been wonderful. I love you. You're doing a great service to people and your, your heart and your passion and what you're doing for Richie and everybody deserve to be applauded because you know what? We are a living, breathing entity and we are important in the world and we make people feel good. So what better cure do you need today than people love people and love music? Agree to that and say amen to that. John, thank you again. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. And we'll look forward to seeing you on the next Heartbeat of the Dance Floor. Bye-bye.